It's episode 162 of the God Stuff Podcast, where we go bigger, better, and deeper. A bigger impact for Christ and the gospel, a better understanding of scripture, how to use, interpret, and apply it, and a deeper walk with God. Let's go deeper today as we are going to talk about the Shield of Faith. This is from the Armor of God series. This is another one of those podcasts where I'm sharing a message that I preached at Pathway Church. This is from January of 2023, where we were talking about the Christian in complete armor. I am working on that book. It may be published by the time you actually listen to this podcast, but we're talking about the shield of faith. What is faith? What does it mean to lift up the shield of faith? So there we go. I hope you enjoy this. And as always, if you want to go deeper in the word of God, head over to Veritas, V-E-R-I, V like Victor, Veritas, V-E-R-I-T-A-S, school.life. That's uh, the online seminary where I teach and go deep in a lot of different things. VeritasSchool.life. Your first month is free. Check it out. And without further ado, let's get into the shield of faith. Welcome to the God Stuff Podcast with Bill Giovanetti, the home of grace-powered living. Because grace isn't an app. It's an operating system. Here's Bill. Hey, welcome to Pathway, and welcome to all our awesome classic service and everybody joining us online. Well, in this auditorium, we just sang Rock of Ages. Good night. I mean, there is hardly a better song than that for lyrics. My heart is so full, I have so much to say. Turn to your neighbor and say, let's enjoy the next three hours of Pastor Bill's message. (laughs) Would you open your Bible, please, to Ephesians 6.16? It's back uh, toward the back, just just about three sixteenths from the back cover. Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 6, verse 16. I have good news for you today. Aren't you glad? Yes. Today is part 10 in our series in the, the, called The Christian in Complete Armor. Here's our Bible verse for today. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. I hope and pray that when we really dig into this verse, you will have mind blown today. So let's see. The Shield of Faith is the title of my message today, in case anybody asks. The context in this place in the Bible is spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. We're all in it. You can run, but you can't hide. And so because we are all engaged in a great spiritual war, God has given you armor so that you can win every tug of war with the dark side. Now, I want to mash in a story into my message from Numbers 21. If you want to turn to that place too, put your guide in the Ephesians verse. Numbers is the third book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, fourth book in the Bible and chapter 21. For some, this is a familiar story. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers 21. There's this amazing incident here when the children of Israel, they are wandering in the wilderness, which is by their own dumb choice, and they are, as usual, complaining, which is always a mark. A complaining spirit is a mark that faith has gone poof. And they are bitter, they are upset, they are angry, even though God's been providing for them, even though they just won a military battle, a military victory. They are faithless, they are ticked off, and they are complaining against God and complaining against Moses. And they're saying that God is horrible and Moses is horrible and everything stinks and God isn't good. And so you have this in verse 6, Numbers 21, 6. So the Lord sent, and I put the word unleashed, I'll come back to that. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Okay, let me point out that that word sent 
doesn't exactly mean sent. This is from Hebrew. The Hebrew word is shalach, S-H-A-L-A-C-H. It actually means to unleash or to let go or to set free. And what was happening was that God had his hand of protection on the people. This was his kindness, his mercy, his grace. He was holding back the evil. He was protecting them from danger. He was already blockading them from the dangers on the way, including the serpents. But when they abused that grace and denied that grace again and again and again, he lifted his hand of protection and he let them have what they asked for, which is a life in this fallen world minus the intervention of God. That's what they asked for. That's what they got. And immediately, the giant pain machine called planet Earth had its way, and in came the fiery serpents, and they immediately regret this. They're very sorry, of course. And they run to Moses, and they say, oh, Moses, help us. Help us. Go to God and pray for us. Help us. So Moses did. Moses went to God. Moses prayed for them. God gave him some very strange instructions. God told Moses, go get some bronze. Bronze is an alloy of two metals. Go get some bronze, make a serpent, a bronze serpent, attach it to a high pole, stand it up in the middle of the camp. Send out messengers to tell everyone in camp who's been bitten by a serpent to come and look at the bronze serpent on the pole, and they will live. What would you have done? Say you had a doctor in the family. What would you have done? It's kind of ludicrous, don't you think? Can you imagine the conversations and all the tents at all the camp? What? Look at a bronze serpent. This is crazy. So you get this. This is Numbers 21.9. It says, so Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at, and they put unto, the bronze serpent, he lived. Okay, so Moses here is stating this really powerful truth. It's in the Hebrew here, because the only way that you would drag your snake-bitten self to look at that serpent was if you had faith to believe that something was going to happen there. You either believed this would work, even a little, or not. It was pretty binary. But it says in the English Bible, in your translation, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. But the preposition isn't at. It doesn't say looked at. It says looked unto. Looked unto. And when you combine those two words in Hebrew, you get a phrase that means trust. You have the same thing here in Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Same Hebrew preposition, look unto. In other words, trust God's saying, trust me, believe in me, and be saved. And Moses is saying, trust me, believe in me, this message of salvation in the bronze serpent, salvation from snake bites, came to the one who believed enough to look, just look unto the bronze snake lifted up for all to see. So that's in the beginning of the Bible. When you fast forward 1,500 years to the days of Jesus, here's Jesus. This is John 3. He's talking to a religious leader. And he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, this religious ruler, I am that bronze serpent. Bronze, because bronze combines two metals, and Jesus combines two natures, human and divine. Serpent, because serpent indicates sin, and Jesus was made sin for us to die the death penalty we deserve. Lift it up, because the bronze serpent was lifted on a pole, and Jesus was lifted up where? On what? on the cross. And in both cases, one look of faith was all it took to be saved. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. When Jesus said, whoever believes, he was making a play on that passage in Numbers. Look unto me. 
and you will be saved. Look to Jesus Christ and live. So this brings us back to, we're going to come back to this, but this brings us back to the shield of faith and Ephesians 6.16. And this verse has in it two illustrations that go with faith. There's the shield, that's an illustration, and then there's the fiery darts of the wicked one. So I'm going to talk about those two illustrations. And I hope you're ready because we're going to do a deep dive into what faith is today. You okay with that? All right, that's good. So let's start with the shield. The Roman soldier was equipped with two shields, and they usually carried one or the other. There was a small round one, and then there was a big, really big rectangular one. The small round one was usually called, in English translation, the buckler. There's a small round shield. It's what you see in a lot of TV shows and cartoons. Buckler, small round shield. But that's not the shield Paul mentions here. The word here, when he says taking up the shield of faith, taking the shield of faith, means the big rectangular shield. The Greek word in this verse is thurios, T-H-U-R-E-O-S. And that word literally means a door because that's kind of what the shield looked like. In fact, the ancient writer Homer explains that soldiers would use their shields as doors to block the entrance to houses they were staying in during war. This shield, this thurios, was four feet high, two and a half feet wide. It was made of wood. It was covered with leather. We're going to come back to that leather in a minute. It had straps on the backside for the soldier to hold it. On the shield, there were hooks on the top, the bottom, and on the sides. So a company of Roman soldiers could stand in rows. Everybody in the front row could literally hook their shields together. This would make an impenetrable wall against arrows and spears. If you ever wonder why Romans were so victorious, they had high-tech weaponry. The back rows, so the front row has their shields in front of them, and they're hooked together. The back rows would lift their shields over their heads and hook them together front and back, side to side too. And no matter how many arrows or how many stones were flung at them, all that stuff would, would just bounce off. And you could not stop this advancing Roman army. So that's the shield. By naming this specific shield, you get the idea that Paul is talking about a heavily armed soldier in a fierce battle. And I have to say, of the pieces of armor that Scripture talks about here, this is the fourth piece of armor. This is number four. Armor pieces one, two, and three we've already talked about, and all of those three attached to your body. You wear those. You wear the belt of truth. You wear, you climb into the breastplate of righteousness, and you wear on your feet the boots of the preparation of the gospel of peace. So the first three you literally wear, but this fourth one you don't wear. This one you carry. And you hold it above all the rest. That's why the verse begins with the words above all. The shield, this shield covers the first three defenses. He's saying that faith is a defense for your defenses. Faith is the double protection that you have in this great spiritual war. Well, what is it a protection from? Well, those are the fiery darts. The shield of faith is how you quench all the fiery darts of the devil. So in ancient warfare, they would dip the tips of their arrows in something sticky and flammable, something like tar. And then they set it on fire and they just let it go. They'd shoot it. This represents a double danger, right? If the tip doesn't penetrate you, which is danger number one, you still have to deal with the fire, which is danger number two. But have no fear if you have the shield, because it wasn't just a wood shield. It was wood covered with leather, and the leather was moist enough to withstand the fire, unlike the wood beneath it. And when you look at this illustration, you notice who's shooting the flaming arrows. These are the fiery darts of the wicked one. Who's that? Satan. That's the devil. Do you realize 
that you go through your day. So here you are at church. You're like, okay, I'm good. Then you get out in the parking lot. Then you get into your life. Then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Do you realize the devil is firing flaming arrows at you all the time? You're in a battle. Why does scripture liken them to arrows? Because they come from a distance. Sometimes you can't even see where they're coming from and they pierce. Why does scripture liken them to flaming arrows? Because once they pierce, they spread out. The fire spreads. What are these arrows? Well, let me give you a technical definition of what the arrows symbolize. Here it is. All the bad stuff. That's it. All the bad stuff. Add it up. Make a list. Flaming arrows. All the bad stuff. Okay, so there we go. Those are the two illustrations. We've got the shield and we've got the arrows. Now with those pictures in our mind, let's talk about faith because it's called the shield of faith. Probably one of the top two or three words used by Christians. We need to understand this word because this is the one thing you need to fend off the fiery darts of the wicked one, faith. So I, I'm going to talk about faith and I'm going to do this in a uh, professor style. I hope that's okay with you. So here we go. Let's talk about the anatomy of faith. I'm going to put some lessons on the uh, screen here. At first, they might seem a little bit, I don't know, overly theoretical and intellectual, but they're not. Okay, we're going to start with this. Number one, faith has a subject and an object. So for any of you in English class, there's a subject of a sentence, there's the object or the direct object of a sentence. When Bible scholars analyze faith, they divide it into two main parts, the subject of faith and the object of faith, right? So the subject of faith, that's the person who does the believing. The object of faith, that's the thing or person that's actually believed or believed in. So if you take this simple sentence, I'm going to say a sentence, and I'm going to ask you, what's the subject, what's the object? Sentence. I believe in Jesus, or I believe Jesus. I believe the gospel. Let's use that one. I believe the gospel. What's the subject of that sentence? I. What's the object of that sentence? The gospel. Okay, I believe the gospel. I believe Jesus. Faith means believing in someone. Faith means believing in something. The one who believes is the subject of faith. The something that is believed or the someone who is believed is the object of faith. Got it? And so over and over and over again, the scriptures are trying to persuade us that the object of faith for the Christian is Jesus Christ crucified and risen again. So here's one example. I've underlined the object of faith. This is Galatians 2.16. Knowing that a man is not justified, put right with God, by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus, Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Can it be any clearer that you're not going to get saved by being a good person and obeying the Ten Commandments? And can it get any clearer that you will be saved, you will be put right with God by faith in Christ? This is super important because the great enemy Satan has worked out a whole lot of strategies against faith by playing with the subject and the object of faith. One main strategy is to take the object and put anything but Christ crucified as the object of faith. He'll, the devil will say, it doesn't matter who you believe, just believe, just believe. Believe in something. It really doesn't matter what it is. For religious people, that something will be their good works or their religion or the baptism, confirmation, communion, whatever it is. For Secular people, it's the glories of human nature and human, the humanist manifesto, I believe, in human potential. Satan will put anything there. Believe on in who, what? We say Christ. The devil says anything but Christ. He'll change the object of faith. Another strategy is to mix the objects of faith. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of good works, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of morality, a little bit of church. I'll believe in Jesus on Sundays and Mammon on Mondays and horoscopes on Tuesdays. Mix the object of faith. Another strategy of Satan is to make you the object of your own faith. I believe in me. 
and myself and I, the Holy Trinity. Another strategy of the devil is to remove the object altogether. Do you believe? I believe. What do you believe in? Well, I just believe. Who do you believe in? I just believe. No object. Believe in what? It doesn't matter. Just believe. All it takes is faith. Another strategy, are you with me? Are you following this? Another strategy is to say that only subjects, I, who are actually predestined by God can have faith. That's wrong and that's no. You guys, faith is universal. Everyone has faith, not just the so-called elect people. The problem isn't the subject, that you're not elect. The problem is that because everybody has faith in something, the problem is their faith is in the wrong thing. Their problem is the object of faith. They're believing hard, but they're believing in anyone and anything but Jesus Christ crucified and risen again. And all of this is satanic. This is part of the devil's master plan to shoot flaming arrows at you and win the battle. When those serpents came in and bit the people and Moses said, look and live, who was the subject? The snake-bitten person. Who is the object? The serpent lifted high on the pole. Put your faith there, you snake-bitten, venom-infested person, and you will live. So far, so good? Okay, that's the first point of the sermon. Here's the second point. Faith is only as good as its object. So let's take this sentence. John believes in the tooth fairy. Who's the subject? John. Who's the object? The tooth fairy. How strong, how reliable, how real is the object? Okay, kids, cover your ears. But not so much. What if it's Santa Claus? What if it's faith in Zeus or Zoroaster or the million gods of Hinduism? What if it's faith in the godless universe of atheism or faith in horoscopes and fortune tellers? You guys, faith is only as good as the object. And so the devil comes in and again, he says, just believe. Oh, you can be a good religious, spiritual person. Just believe. And you say, believe in what? And the devil says, anything, just believe. Doesn't matter. But it does matter. Because if the object of faith is unreal or unreliable or nonsensical or absurd, you can believe with all your might. And it still won't do you any good. So here's the principle here. It's not the sincerity of the subject. It's the reliability of the object that matters most. Can I get an amen? And isn't Jesus utterly and completely reliable forevermore? So when those snakes bit the people and they were called to trust in the uplifted bronze serpent, only one thing mattered. And what mattered was, is the object of faith sufficient to save them or not? And yes, it was. And Jesus says, I am too. My death on the cross for you is not only sufficient, but all sufficient. My death on the cross for you is hyper-sufficient. My death on the cross for you is more than enough to remove the venom of sin and to give you eternal life. Look to me and live. Look unto me and you will be saved. Because faith is as good as it's object, and you'll never find a better object of faith than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Can I get an amen? Okay, now let's go next level. We're doing an analysis of faith. Number three, faith is non-meritorious. M-E-R-I-T-O-R-I-O-U-S. Okay, so we believe in this thing that's called non-meritorious saving faith. This is what you'll find in theology books if you go digging, which is saying nobody gets a merit badge for believing in someone else to take care of them. It's someone else that gets the merit badge. So there's no virtue in the subject of faith. There's no virtue or power in the act of faith itself. All the virtue, all the merit lies in the object of faith. Who do you see there? There's no virtue or merit in the subject. All the virtue and merit is in the object, and the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. May I illustrate? Okay, it's a chair. Have you seen one? Okay, so I believe in this chair. I believe that this chair will hold me up. When I stand beside the chair, I am working. My legs and body are holding my weight. 
The chair is not working. It's just sitting there. But when I believe in the chair and when I sit down in the chair, now who's working? The chair. I stop working. I am resting. I could preach the rest of my sermon like this. (laughs) I've ceased my labors, and the chair has taken that labor up. Who's doing the work here? The chair. Who gets the credit here? The chair. Who gets the pat on the back? The chair. Who gets the merit badge? The chair. So we believe in what's called non-meritorious faith, okay? The moment I sit down, I shift from working to resting, and this is the essence of faith. I hope you're getting this, because there's this lesson that we all have to get, faith is non-meritorious. So what? Okay, here's the so what. When you understand that faith is non-meritorious, you protect grace. Faith is not a good work. Faith is not an effort. Faith is actually an unwork. Faith is actually the ceasing of effort, the cessation of effort. The subject of faith, me, never gets a pat on the back for faith. The pat on the back goes to the object of faith, to the chair, or to whatever person, place, or thing I'm trusting in. And in our case, who's the object of our faith? Who do we believe? We believe in Jesus Christ. And he gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. He gets all the praise. He saved you. Faith did not save you. Jesus did. Faith did not die on the cross for your sins. Jesus did. Faith did not shed any blood, pay any price, earn any praise. All of that was courtesy of a crucified Savior. So that sneaking, conniving devil comes in and he attacks all this and he makes faith itself meritorious. You should be very proud that you've got faith. Or, oh, he says, have faith in faith because faith is all you need and it's all you need because faith has merit. That's a lie. That's a lie. That's the death of grace. That's the death of any of salvation by grace through faith. Faith is a little tiny zero resting its weight on a great big 100. And so you have in Romans 4.16, therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace. God picked faith. Of all the things a human can do, God picked faith because faith is the only thing that a human can do that has zero merit and therefore meshes with grace where Christ and God himself have all the merit. Capiche? Two more hours. <laughs> Number four, saving faith is exclusive. When you get saved, when you put your faith in Jesus, being saved means having one and only one object of faith, and that is Jesus Christ who died for your sins and rose again. You do not trust the church. You do not trust your church. You do not trust your pastor, pope, or priest. You do not trust that you were baptized, confirmed, confessed, or communed. You don't trust any of that. You put over here in the object of faith slot, Jesus Christ crucified and risen again, plus nothing. It's not Jesus plus, it's not Jesus and, it's just Jesus. So eternal salvation excludes every other hope from its object. If you're believing in Jesus today, plus the fact that you were baptized, you're not saved. If you're believing in Jesus, plus the the fact that you're a good, decent, moral person who helps others, I'm glad you're a good, decent person who helps others, but you're not saved. You're not saved by works. Jesus said, This is John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is as exclusive as it gets. It's Jesus or it's no salvation for you. It's Jesus alone or it's no salvation for you. This is exclusive. This excludes everything from that object of faith but Jesus Christ. This wipes everything off the table. So I want to give you a definition of saving faith, because as a church, we believe in evangelism. We believe in helping people come to this place of saving faith. And I'm going to give you this definition. It's a little technical, but grow into it. 
Saving faith means claiming by personal choice and relying exclusively upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for my salvation. Friends, the finished work of Christ is absolutely everything. We don't talk about it enough. In his dying breaths, Jesus cried out one word in Greek, three in English. He said, it is finished. But he said, finished, John 19.30. And what he was saying was that his death was all that was needed. His sacrifice was the only payment needed. His condemnation, his damnation, his punishment, his suffering, his receiving into his own body our sins and guilt and shame and wrath of God. He took all that was needed. And then he said, finished. Why? His work was done. We believe in the finished work of Christ. And so many people are out there scrambling to add more work to the finished work. It makes no sense. Stop it. Faith in the finished work of Christ is saving faith. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Aren't you thankful for him? Aren't you thankful for Jesus Christ? When you look at something, you can't look in two directions at once. And so the Bible says you can't be double-minded here. You're either looking to Christ or to someone else, but you can't look both ways. There is no other antidote to the venom of sin, no other salvation anywhere but him. So we would say this, so the one and only efficacious, that means it gets the job done. The one and only efficacious object of faith in the Christian life is Jesus Christ and his finished work on our behalf. It's faith alone in Christ alone. Can I get an amen? amen. Guys, this is faith. This is faith. We're talking about faith. There is nothing complex about the subject, I, and everything complex about the object, Christ. Because the object has to be sufficient. The object has to be efficacious. And I'm telling you, if you have Jesus Christ, he is. Aren't you glad for that? I'm so thankful. And when Paul urges you to cover your life with the shield of faith, he's telling you to cover your life with Christ. So I want to get into this a little more, because I think I'm going to start blowing your mind in a minute. Whenever, so you, look, okay, you have problems coming at you, right? Fiery darts. That's Satan's fault. Fiery serpents. For the Jews, that was their fault. Can we all agree that we bring some trouble on our own heads? I think I've seen you do that. So whether it's fiery darts from Satan or fiery serpents from our own dumb choices, the solution is the same, and the solution is the shield of faith. Faith. Keep faith with God. Believe in the power of Christ. Believe in the reality of your salvation. Trust him. Turn to him. Look to him. And then when you forgot, look to him again. And then when you forgot, look to him again. And then again, and then again. Because the devil is fighting tooth and nail to make you turn anywhere but Christ. Anywhere but the finished work of Christ. He wants you to lose faith. He wants you, he wants you to, to nix your faith. He wants you to despise faith. He wants you to believe that faith doesn't work. Faith is too hard. I can't have faith. Lord, I kind of believe that my faith is weak, and so it's no good. Look, the goodness of your faith isn't in you. It's in the object of your faith. How's Jesus Christ? Isn't he good enough? And here's where I want to blow your mind a little, because I want to get off of the same old track after of how so many Christians and pastors interpret the shield of faith, because the shield of faith is not what you think it is. So I'm going to read a Bible verse. This is Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, and this comes right after Hebrews 11. What's in Hebrews 11? The hall of faith. It's a list of dozens of believers of the Old Testament era who were famous for faith. And by the way, none of them was a very good person. Tuck that away. 
But they're heroes. They're in the hall of faith. So that's Hebrews 11. Then you get this. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. There it is. Looking unto Jesus, the bronze serpent lifted up. Looking unto Jesus, the God-man crucified for our sins. The author and finisher of our what? Faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I love this. Now, I'm going to put the same verse on the screen, but I'm going to put some of my own comments and amplifications in brackets, okay? Because this is not what you think it is. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, messed up people who kept faith anyway. Hebrews 11. Let us lay aside every weight. Now, typically when this verse is, someone's preaching on it, they're saying, you got to not be so busy and you got to let go of your love of money. And you, no, you know what the weight is? Needless additions to faith. That's it. You being a better person, you working up, forget it. The needless weight is anything beyond simple faith. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin. Again, when this is preached, it's like you got to stop that sin because that sin of yours is going to ensnare you. And listen, you should stop your sin. If, you're not, if you can't have victory over sin, your problem is you don't know grace enough. Sin shall not have dominion over you for you're not under law but under grace. And if sin has dominion over you, you've got grace deficit disorder. The sin we're to lay aside is hostilities from Satan's pain machine. So all this bad, the fiery darts, the fiery serpents, all the bad stuff coming at you, brush it off. That's what it's saying. Don't let that run your life. Don't let that have dominion over you. Lay that stuff aside. In the very next verse, you'll see it. Well, you won't see it. In verse 3, this is talking, this is what Jesus said. He had hostility of sin coming against him. So the sin that you lay aside, that's the hostilities from Satan's pain machine, which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance. The word is ongoing faith. The race. The Greek word is agon. We get a word in English from it. Can you guess? Agony. And any of you who's ever been a runner, you know agony. The word means struggle or gauntlet. This is you dodging the flaming arrows. This is you dodging the serpents that are everywhere and you don't want to step on them. This is you stuck in this fallen world, which is more than a broken pain machine, until you see Jesus face to face. Run that. This is the race set before you, which consists of suffering. And who set that before you? A lot of people think, well, this is God. God has decreed that you should have a difficult life. God has decreed that you should have this disease or that disease. God has decreed that you should have more struggles than anybody else you know. God has decreed that you should have these losses and these pains and these disabilities that other people don't have to deal with. God has decreed your hard life. No, he did not set that agony before you, the devil did. But you can have victory anyway. Let us run with endurance the, the gauntlet that's set before us by Satan, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, it's the same verb, the race that is set before us, the joy that was set before him. Who set that joy before him? God. It still involves suffering, but it was a path of joy because he interpreted it through eyes of faith, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's where I made my own breakthrough while I've been studying for this message. I've always thought that the shield of faith meant a certain kind of faith. You have to have faith that God will handle your problem, whatever that situation is. Faith, faith in God. In, ever, in other words, when you're talking about the shield of faith, most of us think that, oh, I'm in, a, I'm in trouble, and I need God to handle my trouble. In other words, when the fiery darts are flying thick and 
fast, the object of faith in that moment should be God's ability to handle those fiery darts, those specific fiery darts. Now, we've already talked about saving faith. This I'm going to call situational faith. Situational faith means confidence that God will come through in this specific situation. This is good faith. This is real faith. I believe this, and I preach this. Believe in God for this specific situation. And I always used to say that this is what Hebrews is talking about, and this is what the shield of faith is talking about. I no longer think that this is the case. I no longer think that situational faith is the point of the shield of faith. So you're sick, and now you've got to believe that God will make you well, or your child is sick, you've got to believe that God will make you well. What if you don't believe? You're going to work it up? So you're out of work, and now you have to lift up faith that God will pay your bills? What if you don't have that faith? You suffer depression, you feel deep anxiety, you struggle with sexual addiction or any addiction, and now what? You're supposed to have faith that God will fix it and reverse it and deliver you and make you never desire that horrible thing again? Listen, God can do that. I believe he does do that, but that's not the shield of faith, because otherwise it's putting on you the burden that belongs on the object, the precise object of faith in every serious child is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That doesn't change. So I'm going to call this, we have saving faith, situational faith, savior faith. Means going back to Jesus and his cross to remember again the love of God and the enormous cost of the grace that saved you. And I'm saying that this is the shield of faith. This is the faith of the shield of faith. This one. Are you in trouble? Fiery darts, fiery serpents, go back to the cross. Go back to Calvary's love. If you can believe that God's going to fix it, great. Hallelujah. But if you can't, go back to the cross. Go back to Calvary's love. This is faith enough. Go back to Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Go back to that. Go back to the day your faith began and remember him. Go back to the forgiveness of sins through the sacrificial death of Christ. Go back to the assurance that every blessing is yours and yours in abundance, for by his stripes you are healed. Go back to that day when the Holy Spirit flooded in and sealed you in union with Christ forever. Go back to the power of that promise that sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law but under grace. Go back to the promise that nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God. Go back to that great fact that God in Christ Christ has already won the victory over Satan and sin and death and depression and despair and every dark cloud hiding the radiance of his smiling face. Look unto Jesus. Look unto him as the Savior. Look and live. Look and live again and again. Look to him and simply say, thank you, God, for saving my soul. Thank you, God, for making me whole. Thank you, God, for giving to me thy great salvation, so rich and free. And Lord, if you don't ever give me one more thing, I'm still blessed. But I believe you're going to give me more things. And when your heart is so heavy, you can't stand it. And when you're so anxious and so frustrated or afraid, let faith grow in you by simply going back to the cross and remembering his shed blood and remembering a love that will not let you go and a glory land coming with no more sorrows and no more tears. That is the shield of faith. That is the shield of faith. That is the shield that all the hosts of hell combined can never get through. And how to make that faith bigger and stronger, we are going to talk about next time. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, I do pray for deliverance for those who are feeling in an exceptional way the fiery darts of the wicked one. But I pray that as they hear of Christ more and more, that faith will be lifted up to extinguish and quench those darts. Lord, give us the people of Pathway an appetite for your word and for the message of your grace, I pray. Through Christ our Lord, everybody can say amen. Thanks for listening to the God Stuff Podcast. Find out more at GodStuff.tv.